Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. Now, as one of the hosts on the channel, I like to think that I read quite a few academic books. I should probably read more, but that is a discussion for a different podcast. And most of the time when reading academic books, I read books that are deeply and meticulously researched. They take on a wide range of primary materials, and they might deal with textual, visual, and material kinds of sources. Sometimes, a little less often, I read works of history that have fascinating stories in them, and I tend to gravitate to stories about people. People who give their parents elaborate birthday gifts, people who work to right wrongdoings, or people who find creative ways to get their rulers to work for them for a change, maybe to convince them to ease up on tax collection just a little bit. And sometimes, and this is when I get really excited, I read books written by writers who seem to really care about the craft of writing. Books that are beautifully written with the reader in mind, that take the reader on journeys, include elegant lines and interesting narrative moves, and sometimes have chapters that proceed in completely new and surprising ways. And sometimes, very, very, very rarely, I get to read books that are all of these things at once, well-researched, filled with stories, and just wonderfully written. Books like the one that this podcast episode is all about, Shrines to Living Men in the Ming Political Cosmos by Sarah Schneewind. This came out in 2018 and was published by the Harvard University Asia Center. On the one hand, and on the book jacket at least, this is a political history of the Ming. It examines the institution of pre-mortem shrines in Ming China, that is, shrines erected while the person was still alive. And the book makes a really compelling case for the study of these shrines. It points out that they were all over the Ming. They complicate basic dichotomies like honor and worship. They were part of a range of strategies that incorporated transient officials into localities. They embody core values of the Ming and they reveal possibilities for political speech and action by local people within the autocratic Ming state. And as Sarah shows in the book, the study of these living shrines allows her to access not only what she calls the minor mandate, that is a political theory never quite articulated but reflected in documents that magistrates could have their own semi-autonomous relation with heaven, but also the messiness of the Ming and history. Um, And you'll hear us talk about both the minor mandate and the messiness of the Ming history and life in general in this conversation. But while I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, I urge you to seek the book out. 
even if you aren't a historian of the Ming. Reading it made me sit back, examine my own attempts at writing, and made me want to be a better writer. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And even if you aren't in the mood for self-reflection, I think you're still going to want to read it, because it is the only way you're going to find out how the story of the three dings in chapter two ends. And that is a story worth reading. With that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah Schneewind. I'm here today with Sarah Schneewind to talk about her new book, Shrines to Living Men in the Ming Political Cosmos. Welcome, Sarah, to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, you're most welcome, Sarah. Great. So let's start, as is traditional on the channel, by talking at the beginning about your beginning. So, Sarah, how did you come to be a Ming historian? I don't really know where to start, but I will start in 1988 to 1990. I was working at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C., and it was a very interesting period to be working there. But there were a couple of afternoons when I was given permission by my boss to go to the AAS and also to the regional AAS, which were both held in Washington that year. And when I got to the regional AAS, Jane Kate Leonard was giving a talk about the canal crisis. Kaylee Carlitz was giving a talk. And I just found myself sinking back into my seat and thinking, ah, now I am at home. I think I belong back in academia, not in this very, very interesting job in Washington where nobody really ever thinks things through. So I took a day off of work and filled out all of the graduate applications and I wound up at Columbia. When I got there, I came to realize that there were an awful lot of people doing Qing history, and I wanted a wide open field. There were not that many people working in Ming history. In fact, at that time, the only person in Ming history at Columbia was Wu Peiyi, who was really a Queens College professor, but who came in to do classical with us and work with us on our translations. Uh, and that's how I got into Ming, was to try to find a place that wasn't too crowded where one could do something. Perfect. So you found your people and then you found some space among your people. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Perfect. So the book we're talking about today, Shrines to Living Men, um, is, as the title suggests, I think, at its most basic fundamental level um, about pre-mortem shrines. So, sh so shrines erected while the person that the shrine honored, whoever he might be, um, was still alive. Now, this is your third book, I think, um, and I believe you have been working on the project, if I read your acknowledgments correctly, for a little while. So could you talk a little bit about how this book developed? How did you come to work on Shrines to Living Men? And when you set out to work on them, uh, was this the book that you planned to write? Not at all. Uh, in answer to your last question, I had run across living shrines when I was looking through a lot of gazetteers for my dissertation. And I had no idea what they were. I hadn't been very well, very thoroughly trained in Ming history since, as I mentioned, there, 
There wasn't anyone doing it at Columbia at that time. I had studied it with Professor Himes, which was wonderful, but he was learning it alongside me. And so I didn't even really know about the living shrines to Wei Zhongxian. And I didn't really recognize the term when I ran across it. I just thought, living shrines, that's a very odd thing. I wonder what that is. And I started keeping a list in my notebook. Whenever I would run into one, I would just jot down the gazetteer and, and page number where it appeared. Then I finished that book and I finished the Mellon's book and I was looking around for the next project after getting tenure. And I decided that it would be interesting to write about the relationship between resident administrators, that is prefects, subprefects and magistrates and their, uh, the people of their jurisdiction. That was something that I had gotten very interested in. But I didn't really know how to go about it. Um, my, I basically needed something that was relatively easy to do. And since I, was, I knew how to follow an institution, that's always a pretty easy thing to do. You can look around for, for that word and then see what's happening around it. So I decided, well, let me just do this a chapter on living shrines it will be short. There can't be that many of them. It's such a weird thing. I'll just write up that chapter, and then I'll by then I will be smart enough to have figured out what to do for all the other chapters. Well, um, once I started looking around, obviously I realized that there were just gazillions of these things. And in fact, it got to the point where I could pretty much walk into the library, pull any book off of any shelf, open it at random, and there would be a living shrine there. And so the problem became instead, you know, how to deal with this vast mass of material. I needed a different kind of method. I started various kinds of tracking that had worked when I was working on community schools, but they just didn't make any sense for this particular topic. So that's how I got started on it, was just by noticing something odd and wondering about it. And I think that's often a good start point for projects. Um, I was able to conjoin it with a question, an analytical problem of the relation of these resident administrators to the people of their jurisdiction, which had come into my thinking through a number of different routes, including studying the role of local cadres in the communist period when I was first in grad school who were in a somewhat similar middle position. And so the ability to conjoin something odd and interesting with a larger problem that you're interested in, I think is a good way to start a project. Great. I think that's a really useful um, starting point. I, I, love, I love the idea, though, that this started off as just one chapter. <laughs> because the yeah. book itself, as it is, in its finished form, um, is, as we're going to talk about, nine chapters divided into three parts. So much, much larger, I think, than you had, as you just said, initially um, anticipated. So this book, uh, you know, about shrines to living men, um, it is about those shrines, but it is also about the Ming political system. So your focus on shrines really effectively and beautifully, and I'm quoting here, reveals possibilities for political speech and actions by locals within the autocratic, bureaucratic Ming state. 
So for listeners who might not be as familiar with the field of Ming history, could you say just a few words about this in particular and about the bigger intervention and move that you think that this book is making within the field of Ming history? Yes. The Ming period has been discussed for a very long time as being one in which the central government, the emperors specifically, and the founder, more even more specifically, held a simply tremendous amount of power. And this was the dominant view of the field when I entered graduate school the second time at Columbia in 1990. And so when I entered, the, when I decided to go into Ming, that seemed to me to be the obvious target to take down. I think it's good to find a really big target and just shoot at it for all you're worth. You may not succeed in totally taking it down, but you will make some difference in the end. And so, um, you know, this view was so extreme that during the Cold War, and Ted Farmer talked to me about how influenced by the realities and rhetoric of the Cold War that generation of Ming historians was, it was even described as being a totalitarian system. Sometimes, uh, so anyway, I don't want to say more about that, but this was, the, this was the view. The second view is that, okay, maybe there was some kind of public sphere Maybe there was some kind of way in which some people had poli the political right to speak, but those people were either only high officials, only officials generally, or at the outside limit, prominent gen gentry people who were not yet serving in office, but had a lot of social standing, a lot of education. The public sphere, if there was one, consisted of those people and no more. When political actions by commoners, by less wealthy people, by unranked people are discussed, they're usually described as consisting in things like riots, petitions, uh, placards, maybe posters, all things that are relatively ephemeral. And there's no, there was no conception that their input was really legitimate or valid in the eyes of the gentry, or very, I should say, very little conception that their input was valid in the eyes of the gentry. And so I was trying to look and see whether there in fact was a greater, what we might call sort of semi-democratic or proto-democratic impulse within Ming politics or strand within Ming politics, not necessarily the dominant strand, but, a, but was there something there? This was important to me because if we go back to go back to my work context, when the Tiananmen movement was brutally suppressed, People began talk of how they had the students had undermined it themselves. They were too disorganized. There was talk in various quarters in China and elsewhere about how the Chinese people 
were just naturally unsuited for democracy, or they might only be suited for it after, you know, as Sun Yat-sen had envisioned a period of political tutelage. And this to me is just absolute, just garbage and very politically pernicious garbage. We don't want to do anything that could support a new renewed autocracy in China or anywhere else, including our own country, may I say. And so to locate, if there were such a strand in Ming politics, to locate it seemed to me to be not just of scholarly interest, but potentially of of greater political import. Not that I have any illusions that, you know, Xi Jinping is sitting around reading my book or or anything like that. But, you know, um, anyway, that was what I was thinking about. Perfect. One one can hope. Yeah. I don't have an ego that big, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if if he was, um, and he opened it up, he would get to part one of the book, uh, which is, as you've titled, Foundation and Floor. And the, the three chapters here, chapters one through three, they really do lay the foundations for the rest of the book that follows. Um, so in chapter one, for example, we're at the very ground level here, um, or beneath the ground, I guess, uh, you introduce basic facts about living shrines. And I'll just summarize some of them for us here. Um, So what did living shrines look like? They looked like deity temples and posthumous shrines, which essentially look like schools, offices, palaces, and houses in general. What did people do in them? Much the same as what they did in posthumous shrines. They bowed, they kowtowed, they offered incense, food, and wine. And perhaps if the person enshrined was really lucky, pig's feet. Uh, Who paid for them? (laughs) Um, many people will return to this later. Um, and how many were there? Uh, hard to say, but probably somewhere between 2,000 and 10,000. And the big one here, um, did pre-mortem shrines follow the law? You conclude yes, so long as one, the person being enshrined had done something worth enshrining. Uh, two, the person being enshrined did not demand a shrine be built. And three, as long as the enshrinee was not still in the area. So with these sort of fundamental questions under our belt, we move then into chapter two, parentalism, where the foundation just keeps on building. And you begin here with a new question, what sort of a man won a living shrine? And in order to answer this question, you open this chapter with three shrines, each one erected for a Mr. Ding. Now, I almost don't want to get into this example of the three dings because this was just one of the many sections in the book that made me laugh. Um, but could you say a little bit about the three dings? Um, who, why, why did they get shrines? Well, I, uh, I, I'm really reluctant to give this away, Sarah. <laughs> I know, it's such a good twist. Um, I think I'll just say something about how I used this section in class the other day. I'm teaching a class now on, on Ming by using biographies. And I think the main point of this section and what I was trying to get across in that class is that whenever we select facts, um, about a topic or about a person, the eyes of the historian 
the questions that the historian is asking will determine, of course, the interpretation. And so I guess what that means is that if you're going to make any case, you need to have an awful lot of examples to back up your argument. And I, that's something that I tried to do throughout the book. There are cases where I really only have one example that shows something, but as often as possible, I tried to have multiple examples and to put them in the footnote if I couldn't fit them in the text. Um, and I, yeah, so that's what I'll say about that. Perfect. Well, we'll leave the mystery of the dings alone then. I will just add to that. Um, this chapter, I said it, I said it, there's a twist. And after that twist, I think what I really love about this chapter is you sort of, you correct the question in a way that you started the chapter with. So you started with what sort of man won a living shrine. And then the question becomes really beautifully, what actions, um, you know, of a man does this shrine honor. And the rest of the chapter then looks at some of these different actions that someone can do that will get them their very own shrine. Um, And here's something I just wanted to emphasize. This will come up in later chapters as well. Um, You point out that the kind of governing that you you term a paternalist, the kind of governing that was demanded and shaped it was demanded and shaped by the locality below as much as it was imposed by the central bureaucracy above. So the people below certainly knew what kind of governing they wanted and they would reward it um, in, you know, with a shrine perhaps. So in this takes us then to chapter three, um, and this chapter is titled Worship. Now, this is a really interesting chapter, and here you're sort of tussling with the idea of whether we should understand living shrines as offering honor or worship. So are the shrines religious or political? So could you talk a little bit about that question, that distinction there? Yeah. Um, I guess that by calling what we've got in Ming a... Politicosmos. I wanted to use the word politicosmos, and they wouldn't let me. So uh, political cosmos. I think ultimately where I come down is that it isn't so meaningful to, in, in many cases, it isn't so meaningful to separate politics from religion in a lot of Ming interactions. And I think this is probably true for the world broadly. Uh, at least up until, oh, I don't know, let's say Darwin, Origin of Species, 1859. Um, But I needed to deal with the question of whether what was going on in these shrines was worship or honor, honor or worship. If honor, then you could see it as being involved with political relations, whether those were self-centered political relations involving flattering a powerful official or official on his way up, or whether they were more public-minded political interactions pursuing the interests of a particular locality. If it was honor, then that. If it was worship, that would move us more into the area of religion, obviously. And it became clear that it was quite impossible to figure out which it was 
from the words that were used. And so I had to go through an awful lot of intellectual tussling and also consulting with many, 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 many people in the field who understand these things better than I do to figure out exactly what was going on here. In the end, I broke it down into a couple of more specific questions. For example, if offerings are made to an image and the person whom the image represents in some way could be shown to have taken in those offerings, such as the example where um, a man felt drunk at court one day. This was a song story retold by a Ming writer. A guy feels drunk at court one day, he's kind of staggering around, and the emperor's like, dude, you're staggering around. What is going on? Are you drunk? Did you come in to talk to me drunk? And he says, oh, I'm terribly sorry, your majesty, but you know, when I was the magistrate back in such and such a place, they put up this living shrine to me and they must be making an offering to me there. And that's why I'm feeling drunk. So it seemed to me that if, if, if the person, the living person could take in the offerings that were being made to his image, then that gave some um, sense that there was a spiritual connection, that it was not a purely secular kind of connection. Secondly, could the image, having taken in those offerings, could the the person then could the image then do miracles? Whether the person, the actual person, was aware of them or not, if the image could do miracles in the way that a deity or a spirit would do, then it seemed to me it was worth talking about it as worship. And I did find a few examples in which the images of living men while those men were still alive, did do miracles. And I tell about those examples or were expected, were expected to do miracles or did in fact do miracles. And I talk about those examples in the book. But there weren't enough of them to make me feel that the religious impulse was the major impulse in this whole kind of institution. Um, you know, when you read about the, the miracles done by a God, usually there's a whole lot of them. It's not just, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to scour the sources to find examples of miracles done by gods. They're all over the place. And so if there were only a few, uh, that's why I put it in this first part. It kind of clears the ground. Okay, yes, there was some worship going on, but it's not enough to explain the very widespread of this institution. Perfect. And I mean, you just, you touched on a few things um, there with regards to, you know, talking about evidence and examples and, you know, in your whole answer itself, raising the issue of nuance. And I think those are such key such key parts of this book itself. The entire book is so carefully constructed and is so clearly constructed. Almost at every turn, when you have a piece of evidence that you offer up, you're very clear about the limitations that it has, um, what you can say with it, how it could be, you know, how how you could interpret it a different way. I mean, in this chapter, but throughout the book itself, the entire book is extremely thoughtful. Um, and I 
really, really kind of you to say, Sarah, and I just want to tell you what an incredible struggle this was and how I was pushed into this by my many, many colleagues um, to whom I am ever so grateful. For example, one person read the book and said, it was John Dardess. I'm not going to hide who it was. John Dardess read an <laughs> earlier draft of this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his work. I feel wherever he's, he, wherever I go, he's been there before me. And that includes on Living Shrines, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and he read it and he said, you know, I feel like I've got 108 beads on a rosary and I have no idea how they're connected <laughs> to each other. So this was something that I really, really had to work on. And then another example was that one of the anonymous readers, I don't know who the person was, but I'm very, very grateful to him or her. One of the anonymous readers for the press said, you know, there doesn't seem to be any chronology in this book. Like what came first and what came next? And and how are these things related to each other? It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm really grateful for this kind of criticism because it just pushed me into making things as explicit as I could. And of course, in the process of doing that, supposedly for the reader, that was when I was able to figure things out for myself. So one thing I'd really like to underline is not only my gratitude to everyone who helped me on this project, but also just how important it is for scholarship that we talk to one another, that we heed one another's criticisms. Um, and I, I certainly hope we can get back to having conferences in person uh, because th this is just an aspect, not only is it a joy and a pleasure to me to interact with my colleagues, who really are the only people who can actually understand what is most important about me, um, but also just, uh, so it's it's a joy and a pleasure to be known by by one's colleagues, but also I think it's just so important for our work to produce, helping us to produce work that is actually comprehensible to others. Mm -hmm. And as as a reader who who only has the comprehensible work that is the result of all of that work, and as you've just pointed, as you just hinted towards, it wasn't just your your work alone that the other people were involved. Um, as a reader, I'm very grateful for, yeah. that, for that work as well. Yeah. Um, wonderful. So let's move then to part two. And I said part one was foundations. Part two, uh, you've called pillars and beams. So these chapters, chapters four, five, and six, they build on the foundation that you laid in part one. They add height to the argument, so to speak. Um, so in chapter four, political work, for example, you extend the um, argument that you started in chapter three about the political work and claims that pre-mortem shrines could send. So you talk here, uh, sorry, you touch here on the political work that shrines do. So you point out that these shrines were places where local people could tell officials what policies they appreciated, um, while the shrines themselves demonstrated how an official who implemented desired policies would be rewarded. So in this way, even in some limited capacity, local people could shape or, or influence the choices of administrators. Um, in chapter three, from flattery to participation, you look at the elite discourse about pre-mortem shrines, and among other things, you touch on the dynamics that emerged around the legal requirement 
that the enshrinee not request a shrine be built. They were supposed to modestly decline, at which point, um, and I'm quoting here, the pig-headedly grateful subjects would override the modest refusal. So here you look at the portrayal of this positive, righteous disobedience and what it really says about how elites thought about the people. Um, and then in chapter six, commoners, you focus on and examine what um, the shrines say about who was involved in their construction. So who sponsored the shrines and in turn, who participated in politics. And in particular, as the chapter title might indicate, you're looking at how commoners participated in politics. And you make a really interesting point here about how to read the sources. You talk about how um, when a source reports that a shrine was sponsored by commoners, the historian has two choices. They can believe it, in which case we can conclude that commoners participated in politics, or historians can choose not to believe it, in which case we can conclude, and, it, and as you say, perhaps more interestingly, um, we can conclude that elite writers claimed that commoners had a right to political participation. So either way, a historian can do something meaningful with the record, um, even though the record might be formulaic, or even if a historian feels strongly about doubting the fact that commoners could participate in Ming politics. Now, these are three really fascinating chapters, and we could talk about each of them in turn for a full hour, I am sure. Um, but in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you to do the impossible. Is there one example, one shrine, perhaps from the middle section of the book that you think is particularly important or that does important work for this section of the book? Mm. That's like asking who your favorite child is, Sarah. <laughs> Maybe not the favorite then, but one of the favorites. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me, um, I'll talk about this section that's called gentrification, I think. This was a, a, a county, that a prefecture really, that had a large number of shrines. And when I was first starting this project, there was one article um, by a historian in China called Zhao Kusheng. I would love to meet him someday, about um, living shrines in Ming that I used as a, as a kind of jumping off point. And he pointed out that Jiaxing had a huge number of shrines of living shrines. And so I said, okay, well, let me start there. Again, I was expecting that this would be a, a quick, you know, one chapter job. And I dove into reading these steelies and the various, it's complicated because they appear in various versions. I mean, in some ways it was the most difficult place to start. I was not familiar with any of the tropes. I was not familiar with the allusions that were characteristic of this genre. I feel that whenever you start a new project in classical Chinese, it's almost like starting over again with classical Chinese because you just don't know what's going on. And so I had done a huge amount of work on this stuff. And then by the time I was finishing up the, and I sort of wrote it up, then by the time I was finishing up this project, another article had come out um, by He Shui about this, the, the, living shrines in this particular place. And she makes a very strong argument that they were gentry productions. They were gentry, they were pursuing gentry agendas. 
and there was no real room for popular participation. And so, of course, you know, I needed to combat this. I felt that all the various other places that I had studied shrines already showed this, but wouldn't it be cool if I could show that there was actually more to the story that that she was telling? And by going back to my you know, work of years before on this prefecture, I think I was able to show that even in this most gentryish case, if you look at the prehistory to the period she was talking about, the shrines did indeed originate in popular po- political action. And so I was glad to be able to do that. I think the larger message well, I, I won't say anything about the larger message because I think you're going to get to it later. Okay, we'll we'll hold hold that one. The larger message is coming. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Uh, so then, setting part two aside, and as I as I said, and I'll say it again, um, there is so much in these chapters and in the book itself that we're just not going to get to. Um, but we move then to part three, walls and roof. And this is where the structure that is the book starts to look a little little more finished, I suppose. This is where some things get, you know, um, get a roof on them. So chapter seven, a political investment, um, is an interesting chapter. It's actually an an extended case study of uh, Shaha County in North China, which is a relatively poor county, but that has an unusual number of shrines. And you really use this example to pick apart some of the standard assumptions about pre-mortem shrines. So for example, were the shrines shrines sponsors eminent men? No. Did the honors promote career success? Not really, no. Um, And one thing you talk about here that I found particularly interesting was your discussion about the discourse of gratitude. So you talk about mentions of the people expressing their gratitude towards good magistrates here. So could you say a little, a few words about this discourse and perhaps where or how you saw locals using it in your sources? Yes, the fundamental reason for setting up a shrine is to bow, to recompense, to requite, to repay, to express your gratitude for favors that have been granted. And it's easy, I think, to dismiss this as um, ideologically loaded kind of, oh, we poor people down here, we're so grateful for whatever you've given us, and we will do whatever you say. And you know, we're nothing and you are powerful. And if you turn it around, you can see quite clearly that people are choosing uh, which officials they want to express gratitude to. They by no means are grateful to all officials. And in fact, living shrine steelies can be used to criticize all officials, but the one who is being honored at the moment um, but but furthermore, not only do they choose whom to honor and therefore whom not to honor, whom even to criticize, but they also say very explicitly what they are grateful for. And so that then it becomes a, an agenda for the incoming magistrate, prefect, etc., uh, to follow. 
And we can see that in this chapter, they're quite explicit that they're setting up the living shrines to the guys who did a pretty good job. They say for 10,000 years to be a pattern for those who will hold command here. And so, yes, they're expressing gratitude, but they're using that opportunity to say what they want and to promise a reward to those who will do what they want. That is the reward of being enshrined uh, and receiving offerings, both before and after death. Absolutely. The the promise of pig trotters is very strong. Um, (laughs) I know that's what motivates me. (laughs) It's great motivation. (laughs) Wonderful. So with this and these... um, Something I think you touch on really strongly here is, as you've just said, you know, that this discourse, though it is about gratitude, it does serve to empower um, locals. They can make it. Um, they can make something of it. And that's a, it's a great chapter, um, but not as great, perhaps, in my eyes, as chapter eight, Complications. <laughs> and this was, as I've just indicated, probably my favorite chapter in the book, because I don't know if I have ever read a chapter quite like it. So here, I'm just going to read the very opening of this chapter. You speak to the reader directly. You say, reader, I have not told you the whole truth. I have presented arguments for the public political roles of living shrines. But like any long-lived and widespread institution, pre-mortem shrines flexibly served a number of purposes. Everything is more complicated than what has been presented in the preceding chapters. So, and then you go on to talk about some of these complications and nuances. So you cover a number of different kinds of shrines here, including my personal favorite, a birthday shrine built by a son for his father's 90th. Now, this was such an interesting chapter. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why you wanted to write it. So why write a chapter like this that opens by telling the reader point blank of all the things that complicate the story? that they've gotten from you so far? Well, let's see. I I don't like simple through lines. I don't trust narratives. I think that life itself is so complicated and various and variegated that any narrative winds up being false. And so I originally, I I don't want to say originally, but at one point I planned to make this book sort of a, a set of six essays, each one of which would present a very different aspect of living, of the phenomenon of living shrines. I didn't want there to just be one simple answer. And I I talked to Vivian Shu about this, someone I I very much admire. And she was like, oh, yes, that's great. Definitely do it that way. And I still feel kind of bad that it didn't come out that way. In fact, I'm in the middle of writing an article in which I argue against myself um, in this book. Um, But so one thing that I did was to, for each point that I was making, I would say, sometimes we see X. But where I'd like to come down as the main narrative is not X. And this just drove readers crazy. They could not follow what the heck I was talking about. And so I ultimately moved all of those 
complications out of the main text and put them into this chapter instead of discussing them along the way. I think that we have a relentless pressure from readers, from the press, and we even exert it on our own students, ourselves, to force people to have one main argument. What is your main argument? What is your main contribution to the discourse? Who are you overthrowing? Who are you disagreeing with? Um, what's, your, what's your point? Tell me one simple takeaway. You know, we always are training students to do this. But, and there is some use to it. There is some use to it. As I indicated at the beginning of this interview, I do think you need to choose a big target and try to take it down. And that means you need to have a very strong argument. But, you know, that's not really what even our daily life is like, let alone history, which involves God knows how many billions of people over time doing multiple, multiple things. And so this chapter became my way to stay true to my own vision of history, while at the same time satisfying the press's absolute demands that I have one main argument. You mentioned the presses in your answer there. Um, and you said that this chapter was sort of your answer to it. Did Was this chapter satisfying to the presses? Well, they, I'm, I'm, it's one the press. I, that's the, right. the Harvard Press. The, the, that was the only people I was working with. Yeah, I mean, they, they accepted it. And I think by having it quarantined off, as it were, safely, in one in one chapter, and you know, then the very interesting thing was, Sarah. I have to say that once I was doing it that way, I did recognize that, as a matter of fact, every single one of these exceptions also proves my main argument. So it may be that everyone else is wiser about this than I am, and that it's just intellectual laziness that makes me wave my hands and say, "Oh well, everything's complicated and varied. We can't have a narrative." Again, to go as, as sorry again as the reader, I really appreciated this chapter, and I thought it was wonderful. And your answer to the question initially really reminded me, actually, of the way that you end the book, as you end with "variety is the stuff of history." Um, so I thought that that tied in beautifully with your answer about you know what are we doing when we are historians and when we ask students to come up with their one main point. Um, that was great. Thank you. I feel bad then that we've gotten to the very last chapter, chapter nine, um, because this is in some ways the roof chapter, the icing on the cake chapter. Um, This is where I think you get to what, if we were to reduce this book down, might be very easily presented as your, at least as one big argument, one big takeaway, because here you're focusing on what you call the minor mandate. Um, the political theory that magistrates and prefects had their own semi-autonomous relation with heaven. And here you are very clear in this book, I just want to make this very clear, um, that this, the minor mandate, is not a term that occurs in Ming sources, but rather it names a pattern that you see in the sources, um, where a lower level official earns autonomous legitimacy in their own jurisdiction. And you sort of, you go through this here, you go through a number of different parallels between this minor mandate and the mandate of heaven. 
Um, is there anything here that you really want to emphasize for listeners about the minor mandate and how you sort of came up with it and how you're thinking about it? Um, I came to this view that there was such a thing as a minor mandate. Now, I must say, my, I wanted to call it the mini mandate, and I was talking about it in class, and my students said, that just sounds too silly. You may not call it the mini mandate. And so that's why I came up with the term of the minor mandate. But this is something that I came to believe was the case way back when I was working on the Ming history, originally the Ming history biography of Fang Kuchin, who was the father of Fang Xiaoru. He was a community school establisher, and that is why I was reading about him. And he exhibits so many of the characteristics of uh, good resident administrators. He was a prefect in Jining, in Shandong, in the very early Ming. Uh, and of course, it being the very early Ming, he was ultimately executed, just as his son was executed by the son of the man who had executed him, which is the lovely Ming for you. Um, he exemplifies so many of those patterns that just by studying his biography, even the, in the very, very brief version in the Ming history, and then I did a very detailed study of all the parts of that and how they, and Fang Xiaoru's account of conduct of his father, Sung Lian's rewriting of that, Su Bo Hong also has a very interesting rewriting of that. Um, I absolutely believed in this long before I started this book on living shrines. In fact, it seemed to me to be just simply obviously true based on Mr. Fong's biography. And so originally I had it stuck in the introduction as kind of a just like, well, this is clearly true. You know, here's why we don't need to talk about it anymore. I'll be filling out some of the details. And Professor Himes told me, you know, um, you might need to make more of an argument for this. You, you can't just have this one very short biography in the Mingxi and say, this is obviously true. That's not going to wash. And furthermore, he said, this is what I think is actually your contribution. So why don't you put it at the end instead? His, his uh, suggestions on reorganizing this manuscript very early on were extremely valuable. And so that's what I did. Perfect. And now it sits as on the roof of this book as it was. Um, wonderful. So as I said, I mean, there's so much in this book we haven't had a chance to cover. But right before we finish, Sarah, is there one more cool story about living shrines that you would like to share? Either one that we didn't get a chance to touch on here, or maybe one that didn't make it into the book at all? Well, I'll talk a little bit about something, some stuff that didn't make it into the book at all, because I had to keep cutting words out of this manuscript. They told me, oh, you can have 135,000 words. Then they told me, no, you can only have 110,000 words. And so I got mad and I just cut out a huge topic entirely. And that is the very interesting phenomenon of men who were enshrined alive in a jurisdiction but one of the things they had done in that jurisdiction was to destroy popular places of worship. This is something that I had studied earlier called destroying improper shrines. And we have quite a number of guys who did this very unpopular thing, one must think, something that definitely does not accord 
with the wishes of the people uh, in destroying not only little you know, uh, deity shrines, but even quite major Buddhist temples, returning monks and nuns to uh, lay life, taking over temple property, etc. And yet, and yet, they are enshrined alive themselves in these jurisdictions. This is very interesting stuff. And so this is the article that I'm in the middle of trying to write up now. Perfect. So in in addition to that article, um, now that you are definitely finished with this book and very close to being finished with our conversation, what are you working on next? What is your next project? What is ex- inspiring you now? Well, I've gotten very interested in work, in people's occupations. And I am that's what I'm planning to do for the rest of my career is to look at Ming occupations. I have a certain sociological framework uh, drawn from the Chicago School of Sociology that I will be studying. Um, Well, my plan is to study all Ming occupations. This is obviously impossible, Um, (laughs) but I will definitely be relying on the work of others in, in my attempt to do this. But that's what I'm planning to do next. Considering that this book came out of plans for one chapter, um, I, am, I am sure that that project, ambitious as it sounds even to me, um, will turn itself into a number of different projects or different books. Um, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a very cool project. Um, and I look forward to reading it in whatever form it comes out and whenever it comes out. Thank you, uh, Sarah, for taking the time to talk to me about this project, this book today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you.